What's the best party that you've ever been to? I should actually, knowing the community that we're in here, a community like ours, I probably qualify the word party because I know that the word conjures up different associations for, for different people in our communities, uh, probably at both ends of the spectrum. Some uh, who would never really uh, go to a party if there were um, alcohol you know, at the party and way at the other end, there's probably some people for whom the word party basically means you know, alcohol or other substance. I, I just, I'll tell you what I mean. I just mean getting together with friends. Uh, we'll use this as a definition of party. A party is any time we get together to celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other in a way that makes life better. That's all I mean. So if you think back to the times when you got together with friends to celebrate being together, celebrate each other in a way that just made your life better. What is the best party that you have ever uh, been to? Maybe ask the question a different way. What, what's the most significant party or the most important party you've ever been to? For me, it would, I think, be the fall of 2002. I had been um, pastoring this church for about five years at the time. And uh, one Sunday morning, I noticed a new face in the crowd, kind of a new face. It was a beautiful young woman who had been to our church a couple times before. I, I knew her uh, from when I was younger, we went to you know, the same summer camp when we were kids. Um, and I'd seen her in our church periodically. She lived out of town, but she would come and uh, visit a, a friend who was a part of our community. But on this particular Sunday morning in the fall of 2002, I think the reason I noticed her was that it was like her third Sunday in a row at church. And that seemed like a long time to be visiting her friend. So I, I stopped her after the service and I said, hey, I said, you're here again. And she said to me, yeah, I just, I just moved here for work. And I'm just getting settled in and I've decided that Southridge is going to be my church. And uh, I frankly have just been trying to figure out how to meet some people. And I said, well, you're in luck. I said, if you want to meet some people, um, a bunch of my really good friends, every single Thursday night, we gather at my buddy's house, Sean, at his house, and we just throw a big survivor party every single Thursday night. It's a bit of a tradition that on Thursday nights we go watch uh, Survivor at Sean's place. You should come on Thursday and watch with us. I can introduce you to a bunch of people. She said, well, that would be really nice. And she turned around and she laughed and, you know, went out the building. And as soon as she was gone, I made a beeline for my buddy, Sean. I was like, buddy, I need you to do me a favor. You have to host a survivor party at your house <laughs> this Thursday. And it might actually, you know, have to be a weekly thing. I, I'll let you know <laughs> on that. But fast forward uh, 16 years later. And uh, this coming Wednesday, that beautiful young woman and I are going to be celebrating our 14th wedding anniversary. I literally in 2002 went to a party that changed my life. And kind of the question that underlies this entire series that we're calling Start the Party is, is this question, what if that's what parties are supposed to do? These, these times when we gather together to celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other in a way that makes life better. What if the parties in our lives were intended to actually change our lives? What if, what if Jesus' intention is that the parties in our lives were actually meant to be spiritually significant events. What if 
Following Jesus means committing yourself to a lifestyle that includes these kinds of parties. Because to be perfectly frank, that's what Jesus' life was kind of about. It's interesting, when you, when you read Jesus' life story in the Gospel according to John, written by uh, one of his good friends, um, right at the beginning of the Gospel according to John, Jesus' very first miracle he performs at a party. He's attending a wedding in a city of Cana, a little small town actually of Cana. And uh, he's at the wedding reception, which is being hosted by the groom and the groom's parents. It's at one of their houses and they sort of throw this party for basically the whole village that lasts for several days, three, four, five days to celebrate the marriage of the, the groom to the bride. And just as a side note, let me say, as the father of four daughters, I fully support this biblical tradition where the groom and his parents pay for the wedding reception. This, I think, was God's best idea. But Jesus is at this party when all of a sudden, you know, like a day or two into the party, they run out of wine, which is, you know, unthinkable in that kind of event in those days. Somebody on the party planning committee didn't do the math of forecasting how much wine they were going to need. And now the groom was kind of hanging in the balance of, of experiencing the embarrassment and the shame and the humiliation of, of failing to perform his sacred duty of hospitality. Where he lavishly and generously pours his loving um, hospitality on his guests. Jesus' mom just can't imagine a scenario. She pulls Jesus aside and says, you have to do something about this. And Jesus, after a little bit of reluctance, John says, turns 180 gallons of water into about 900 bottles of wine. In fact, with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, John says it was actually the best wine we had at the whole, <laughs> the whole reception. When I was a kid, I remember going to a wedding and the, the pastor had said, you know, we know that Jesus is for marriage because he attended the wedding at Cana. And if that's true, then it has to be said that Jesus is for a good party because while he was there, he kind of showed up with 900 bottles of wine to carry a couple hundred people through a few days of celebrating and serving and enjoying the bride and groom together in a way that just made life better. Jesus was about a good party. This wasn't actually an isolated incident. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 18, it's, he, Jesus is talking now about his cousin, John the Baptist. He says this, for, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and the religious leaders say, he has a demon. He says, now my cousin John, he's not much of a partier. He, he doesn't really let his hair down that much. And the, the religious leaders say, well, I, don't, I, don't, I can't, what's wrong with this guy? But he says, on the other hand, the son of man, Jesus came eating and drinking. And, they, and the religious leaders say, well, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus had so devoted the character, the shape of his life to participating in events that celebrate, serve, and enjoy other people in a way that makes life better, to going to parties, that he had kind of earned a reputation 
based on people's assumptions that he was a little prone to overdoing it. People assumed that Jesus was a drunk because of how much he hung around people who liked to party. Now, was Jesus a drunk? Absolutely not. The Bible says, don't get drunk on wine and let the Holy Spirit control your life, not alcohol. Jesus wasn't about getting drunk. He was just about being with people to celebrate, serve, and enjoy them in a way that just made everybody's life better. In fact, you read the, the stories of Jesus' life, the Gospels, and what you'll discover is that, yes, Jesus was a religious person. He goes to festivals at the temple. He goes to Sabbath services in a weekly way. He has private prayer, you know, where he's alone, just him and God. He sometimes preaches at the synagogue. He sometimes preaches out in the open. And, and he's, he's a religious guy. He's a practicing Jew in the first century. And some of the time Jesus is doing like not religious things. He's having conversations with people on the road or having conversations with people, you know, by a well at the lunch counter. He's performing miracles. Like Jesus does all sorts of things. But as you look at the life of Jesus, it seems like the thing that Jesus does most is go to dinner parties. It's to eat and drink and celebrate the presence of other people. It does it all the time. In fact, I picked up a book the other day by Robert Karras called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. And Robert Karras says you can actually track the trajectory of Jesus' life. You can build the shape of Jesus' message just by paying attention to the way that Jesus eats in the gospel according to Luke. In fact, Karis says at one level, Jesus was killed for the way that he ate. His, his whole life was about embodying the values of the kingdom of God in the way that he interacted socially at dinner parties with people. In, in the gospel according to Luke, it, it shows up on nearly every page. It's mentioned, food, eating, meals, mentioned in every single chapter. 77 times Luke draws attention to some sort of food-based theme in the story of Jesus' life. Jesus uh, hosts parties, formal occasions at Peter's house, informal occasions when he feeds, you know, 5,000 men plus women and children at a, an informal picnic in the park. Jesus is invited to parties and he's hosted by them. Jesus tells stories about parties and about how the, the kingdom of God is going to be like um, a, a wedding banquet. It's going to be like a luxurious feast that goes on for eternity. Jesus goes to parties. And why? Why does Jesus commit himself to a lifestyle of attending dinner parties with people, of, of going to events that celebrate, serve, and enjoy people uh, in a way that just makes life better? I think it's because the way that we eat is one way that we embody the truth about who we are and what we're about. I mean, that's just real. Eating is fundamental to what it means to be a human being. I mean, of course, it's fundamental to uh, creatures, but human beings eat differently than the rest of the creatures in the world. On the one hand, we're the only creatures who cook our meals. No other creature, animal, invests energy, literally physical energy, 
in cooking food, in turning food into cuisine. We're only humans do that. Secondly, only humans eat together. I mean, a pride of lions will pick over a zebra carcass at the same time. But that's not the same as eating together, right? Human beings don't eat or we don't even just eat together. We share meals. It's, it's fundamental to who we are, to what we're about. We, we share meals to celebrate special occasions, births and birthdays and retirements, even funerals. We come back for a meal. It's uh, through meals that we nurture our romantic relationships, first dates and wedding receptions and anniversaries. Krista, we've made a commitment in 2018. We're going to try and eat a little cleaner than we have been. And uh, Krista said to me this last week, she said, you know, I'm in the mood for a little bit of romance. And I was like, I... I don't know how to do romance without wine and cheese and crackers. Like I, I, that's it. That's the only card I have. Like, but, but it's fundamental to how we love each other, eating together, sharing a meal. It's how we negotiate business deals over lunch. It's how we have difficult conversations. Why do you need a cup of coffee to have a conversation with somebody? Because this is what we do. We eat together. This is how we connect ourselves to each other. This is how we craft our identity, right? You learn things about your relationship when you eat together simply by the nature of the food. What you cook for somebody who's coming to your house tells you what you think about them. Every culture and every cultural identity has a cuisine that is unique to them. The way that we eat together communicates um, our values of inclusion. Right? Just think about the people who sit around your dining room table. Think about the people who never sit around your dining room table. The way that we eat tells us about the way we relate to each other through things as simple as table manners. The way that we eat communicates our hierarchy of relationships. Who sits at the adult table and who sits at the kids' table? Actually, I was at a dinner party at my dad's place in BC last weekend. And uh, there was like 19 of us there. And uh, dad and Betty ended up sitting at the kids' table. And almost all of the rest of us were in the dining room. And I think they could learn a lesson from that about their level of importance to our family. But (laughs) no, but it's like... We embed our values, who we are and who we care about and what we care about in the ways that we eat. They're all encoded there. And that was true for Jesus. The reason Kara says that Jesus was killed for the way that he ate was because the values that emerge in Jesus and who he is because of the way he does meals so infuriated the religious establishment that they wanted to kill him. For Jesus, meals were places where he was able to nurture God talk with people. In the ancient world, a a dinner party was often called a symposium. And a symposium is two parts. You eat a a meal together, and then once you're done the meal, you pour everyone a glass of wine, and you launch into a conversation about a relevant topic to the group. And for Jesus, the relevant topic for the group was always something about who God was, or what God was up to, or what God was like, or who God cared about. For Jesus, um, meals were were um, the overflow of God's love 
He taught the disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. God, provide the food that we're going to share together. And then at the meal, they blessed God and thanked him for what he provided. God was at the center of their eating. The guest list was evidence of God's love. Jesus would eat with anybody. He ate with good people, bad people, ugly people. He ate with the ultra-religious. He ate with the ultra-notorious. He ate with people the ultra-religious would never choose to eat with. Jesus' meals were evidence of God's generosity. He was the one who would show up with 900 bottles of wine. The one who would feed 5,000 men plus women and children and still end up with 12 baskets of leftovers. Jesus' meals embodied God's forgiveness. He would tell the story about the screw-up son who finally picked himself up and dragged himself home to apologize to dad for wasting his life. And the son wasn't greeted by a lecture about how disappointed dad was. The son was greeted and celebrated with a party. This was what eating together, this is what the dinner party was all about for Jesus. It was a way to manifest the values of the kingdom of God, which is why when Jesus died and was raised and and, uh, went back to heaven, what he left behind for the church was the responsibility to continue the legacy of Jesus' dinner parties. In Acts chapter 2, it says this, that the early church broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Right from the earliest days of the church, they made a commitment every Sunday evening to gather together and to have a meal together where they would celebrate the joy of the, the beautiful thing that God had done among them through Jesus Christ. They would have communion as a part of the meal. The bread reminding them of Jesus' body. The, the, the wine reminding them of Jesus' blood. About his life and death and resurrection. That he was among them as they ate together. And those meals embodied for the church the nature of what God was like. It was in those meals that they encouraged each other to love God through their prayers and their God talk and the sermons and the the scripture readings and the songs that they sang. It was there that they encouraged each other to love each other. Part of what made the church a a scandalous community in the ancient world was the fact that it was only in the church that men and women would eat together. The rich would serve the poor. Slave and master would drink from the same cup. People from every ethnicity and social background sitting around the same table. People outside the church said they were going to ruin society by their inclusivity. It was there that they encouraged each other to love the, the poor where even those who had nothing to bring could come and eat their fill, where the church would donate money and stuff to give to people who didn't have enough, where they would strategize together how they were going to love their city with the love of God. This was what worship was. It was gathering together for a dinner party. It was only you know, 400 years after Jesus when the church was too big to meet in people's homes that they started meeting in public buildings and the meal became a little piece of bread and a little drink of wine. But 
This was what Jesus left for the church to be a party throwing, party going kind of community to throw the kind of parties that showed the world what God is like because those kinds of parties could change people's lives. At least they did for a guy named Zacchaeus. In the gospel according to Luke, there's a story about a time when Jesus was visiting the town of Jericho and there was this guy named Zacchaeus who had heard that Jesus was in town and desperately wanted to see this guy that he had heard so much about. But Zacchaeus was a tiny little guy, couldn't see over the crowd, so he climbed up into this tree to see over everybody's head and to catch a glimpse of Jesus as he passed by. Now you have to understand that Zacchaeus was a known figure in that town. He was a notorious character. He was one of these tax collectors who, on the one hand, he was one part tax accountant, one part government agent, toll collector. But on the other hand, he was one part trader because he was collecting money from his own people to hand to the Roman government who was going to use the money to pay the soldiers who were violently oppressing God's people. He was funding the tyranny. He was working for the enemy, and secondly, he was one part mob boss, unafraid to use violence to extort and exploit his, the poverty of his own people to line his own pockets. But Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is in town, and he climbs up this tree because he wants to see him, and Jesus sees him up in the tree, and he says, Zacchaeus, he says, I think you and I need to have lunch today. The neighbors were scandalized. There's no way that a religious figure of Jesus standing should be having lunch with a guy like Zacchaeus. It was in the newspapers. It was all over the blogs. But they sat down to lunch together. Luke doesn't tell us what happened at lunch. What Luke does tell us is that whatever happened changed Zacchaeus' life. In Luke 19, it says this, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what is lost. Whatever happened over that lunchtime, it was over lunch with Jesus that Zacchaeus the penny dropped for the first time about what God was really like. His neighbors judged him. The religious leaders condemned him. But Jesus' open arms told him that God still loved him. It was at dinner that Zacchaeus discovered that God forgives him. There's a New Testament scholar named, I'm going to get this wrong, but Yoyakim Yeremias, I think. It's close enough. You don't know him anyway, so it doesn't matter. But <laughs> he says an invitation to a meal in the ancient world was an honor. It was a symbol of peace and trust and forgiveness, end quote. It was a way to say you and I, we're good. There's nothing between us. You and I are Brothers and sisters, Zacchaeus discovered at that meal through Jesus that God was making space for Zacchaeus in his world. Zacchaeus discovered at that meal that his life 
could be different. Something about that meal communicated to Zacchaeus that he could imagine his life differently than he had seen. He could see himself differently than he had seen himself and that paved the way for Zacchaeus in faith to make enormous changes in his life. And Jesus says, this is what it looks like to seek and save the lost, to look out for and to bring back in people who have wandered away in their relationship with God. This, Jesus says, is how I do it. It's interesting that Jesus' strategy wasn't to invite Zacchaeus to church or to synagogue. His strategy wasn't to to preach at him. His strategy wasn't to condemn him. His strategy wasn't to hand him an unsolicited book or track or piece of reading material, forward him a blog post and an email. That's not how Jesus did it. Because that's not what Zacchaeus needed. Zacchaeus didn't need to be condemned and judged. He didn't need to be avoided and shunned. What What Zacchaeus needed was to be loved and accepted and embraced and welcomed. He needed somebody to be willing to celebrate and serve and enjoy him for who he was in a way that made Zacchaeus' life better. That's what our friends need. Honestly, that's what I need. Because these kinds of Jesus dinner parties don't just change other people's lives. They have the power to change our lives too. At the very least, they change the life of Jesus' friend, Peter. In the earliest days of the church, um, the church itself was an entirely Jewish affair. Uh, Just the Jewish followers of Jesus who were left behind and um, they just went about uh, being a Jewish church together and kind of content to be that way until one day Peter gets an invitation to go to a dinner party at the house of a guy named Cornelius who is a Gentile Roman military officer. Now, by Jewish law, Peter should have nothing to do with Cornelius. Uh, He wasn't allowed to fraternize with Gentiles. He wasn't allowed to to go to Gentile homes, to communicate, to talk with Gentiles. He certainly wasn't allowed to eat with a Gentile. All of those things were against Jewish religious law. Yet Peter felt this prompting from God saying, no, you should go. And he goes to this dinner party at Cornelius' house. Because Cornelius wants to hear the message of Jesus. And while Peter's there at Cornelius' house, he's, he's sharing you know, the message of Jesus with Cornelius. And it says in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who had heard the message. For they heard, for the disciples heard Cornelius and his family speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in their way of being baptized with water. And they rec- for they received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Peter goes to Cornelius' house to attend a dinner party with a Gentile, with somebody who fits none of the categories for Peter about the kind of person that God would love. Cornelius was a Gentile. In other words, he wasn't one of God's people that God had chosen to save. He was a Roman, which meant he was a citizen of the enemy of the Jewish people. Number three, he was military, which means he was involved in the violent oppression and tyranny that was being pressed down and weighing down the Jewish population. And number four, he was an officer, which meant he was morally responsible for giving the commands that created the oppression and the tyranny. There was nothing about this guy 
where Peter, the categories that Peter was working with, there was nothing about this guy that would communicate that this was somebody that God would want to have anything to do with. And then Peter goes to Cornelius' house and here's what he discovers, that all of his judgments and all of his categories and all of his stereotypes and assumptions about what Cornelius is like were completely false. He discovers, as the story says, that Cornelius was a devout and pious man. That he was a prayerful, worshipful man. That he was actually just a good and righteous guy. What Peter discovers is that Cornelius is the kind of person who sometimes hears the voice of God and desires to be obedient to it, which is why he invited Peter to his house. Because God had prompted him to do that. He discovers that God is already at work in Cornelius' life. He witnesses with his own eyes the Holy Spirit come on Cornelius and his family in exactly the the same way that the Holy Spirit came on Peter in Acts chapter 2. In essence, Peter goes to dinner with Cornelius. He sits across the table from him. He looks into his eyes. He hears his story. He hears his heart. He sees what kind of person this is. He sees that God is already at work in his life. And what Peter discovers in that moment is that he and Cornelius have more in common than they have things that separate them. And Peter, because of that dinner party, does an entire 180 on his opinion of Cornelius and everybody like him. And he says, good gracious, these people need to be a part of the church. And these kinds of Jesus dinner parties, the kinds of parties that embody and incarnate the values of Christ that are saturated with with God talk that are um, that are rooted in God's love with guest lists that represent God's inclusion that manifest God's generosity that are living testimonies to God's forgiveness these kinds of Jesus dinner parties where we get to sit across the table from people and look into their eyes and see their heart and hear their story and discover that our assumptions and stereotypes and categories may have been wrong that our judgments were maybe off discover that God was already at work in them that we're more alike than we are different It's these kinds of parties that have the power to change us. To be more like the way that Jesus was. See, the whole point of this series is that something amazing would happen in us if we were to truly follow Jesus in this lifestyle that he lived of these God-radiating dinner parties 
where the kingdom of God, what God is all about, what God is like, is put on manifest display in the way that we eat together. We would discover the power of these moments when we get together to celebrate, serve, and enjoy each other in a way that just makes life better. We would discover that, that people are changed and we are changed and that life is changed. In a way that looks more like Jesus. So that's the question. What would it look like to see our lives changed through a Jesus kind of party, through a lifestyle of loving people the way Jesus did every single time he went to a party? I would love for our community to find out. Let's pray together. Father, it's easy to talk about your love and it's easy to read about your love. In some ways, it's easy to sing about your love and to even pray about your love. And God, sometimes it's really hard to live your love to love people the way Jesus loved. To be the kind of person whose life is shaped by this impulse to want to celebrate, serve, and enjoy the people you've put in our lives in a way that makes everybody's life better, by which we mean that makes everybody's life, that fills everybody's life with a keener sense of what you are like. Could we become those kinds of people whose eyes are on the lookout for the opportunity to throw a Jesus kind of party and to see what you'd be willing to do as we learn to love each other in that way? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.